Hello, and welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. This episode, we are doing our discussion portion of our coverage of uh, A Pale View of the Hills by Kazuru Ishiguro, published in 1982. As I said, this is a kind of special miniseries. Yes, a special miniseries, a duology, I guess, uh, that we're doing because this was commissioned by one of our Patreon supporters. Uh, we just want to say thank you so much for the commission and thank you so much for the impetus to read this novel, uh, read it together and talk about it together. It has made for an awesome week for me. Yeah, me too. I'm really grateful for the experience. And I'm so glad that we have supporters who, you know, I'm sure I've said this a lot. If you're binging these shows, maybe you <laughs> think, uh, I keep on saying the same thing. I'm just so glad that we have people who want to share what they love with us and, and expect us to uh, love it or um, dissect it in a way that magnifies its greatness in return. And that's what we really try to do here. So thank you uh, to our supporter who commissioned this episode. And uh at the end of the show, we'll talk about ways you can commission episodes if you're so inclined. Well, let's uh, let's do it, Brandon. Let's get into the discussion. I think we threw out a lot of ideas on the recap episode, so uh, so let's hop to it. Yeah, we certainly did. At the end of our recap episode, I, I mentioned that this story is, to me, uh, at least in part, a meditation on Camus' opening to the myth of Sisyphus, which is, there is but one truly serious philosophical problem, and that is suicide. Keiko, the character who most haunts this novel, someone who we learn very little about, apart from the fact that she has isolated herself from the world and her family and has committed suicide. You know, she she kind of lives like a caged animal and and makes that choice herself. Nobody's really forcing her to do that. Uh, so Keiko's the one who commits suicide, but Atsuko's other daughter, Nikki, comes to visit. And this is what forces a reckoning or recalling within Atsuko. And sometimes Nikki raises the question, though not in these words, like, what is everyone even living for? Not why are they alive? Like, not like why are people alive, but what are people actually endeavoring towards that they is so meaningful that these, you know, older generation women can just be married and have kids and live in a home by themselves? And like, she's got this really negative attitude towards endeavoring that doesn't lead to the immediate fulfillment of personal desire. And this question, I think, what are people actually endeavoring, to, endeavoring towards? What are people living for? Lurks behind a, a lot, if not all of the interactions between the characters in Atsuko's memories. Atsuko's memories, and thus the vast majority of the narrative, take place in Nagasaki and the surrounding districts during the rebuilding effort that took place after the uh, atomic bomb was dropped by us, by the Americans. And in some ways, this novel also calls to mind, uh, kind of in this way in particular, the, the life after the bomb, uh, calls to mind a, a French New Wave film named Hiroshima Monomore. I mentioned that really briefly uh, at the top of the recap episode. This is a stunning film that is mostly just two people wandering around Hiroshima after the war in the wreckage, trying to understand one another through very separate and different kinds of tragedies. This film also includes some documentary footage of the aftermath of the bomb, you know, including the, the like the shadows that were burnt into the ground. Um, and it's a very affecting film. It's worth seeing. But what strikes me about this film, what got me thinking about this in, in, in terms of the novel, is that 
they're both exploring ways in which tragic experiences can either have an isolating or a relational building effect. And the characters in Hiroshima Monomore don't share the same tragedies, but they relate to one another by the fact that tragedy is a, a kind of universal feeling that has shaped their lives. Usually we just say like, People are social in their happiness, but isolated in their tragedy. But even though these people don't share the same exact tragedy, the fact that it has shaped their lives opens a space for understanding between them. And I think that sort of tension is present in this novel as well. Sachiko doesn't understand why Mrs. Fujiwara can say she has anything to live for. Just keep looking forward, you know, Mrs. Fujiwara says. Meanwhile, Sachiko has a really loose relationship with her responsibilities, namely Mariko, but has found some kind of hope or reason for going on in her fantasy-fueled uh, relationship with Frank. So how I'd like to structure this discussion is 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 really this way. I want to look at how Etsuko frames the people in her past as people who are finding reasons to go on when there may not be a whole lot of reason to move forward or look forward, as Mrs. Fujiwara puts it. And I think we start by approaching the novel from this perspective. It's also going to give us an opportunity to examine the role that these people are playing for Etsuko as she is gently exploring her own very personal sense of failure as a woman and a wife and a mother. Hopefully, it'll also allow us to hit on other thematic topics throughout the novel in this way. In other words, I want to answer the question that Keiko couldn't and that Nikki kind of refuses to explore. So let's just start with Mrs. Fujiwara here. I kind of have a, a, a reason for going through these characters in the order I'm going through. Um, I just want to ask you, Glenn, what do you think it is that Sachiko in particular does not understand about Mrs. Fujiwara's optimism, about her kind of refusal to look back on the past? Yeah, this is a strange place to start with. I mean, not the question, but the character. Mrs. Fujiwara was not the first character I thought you were gonna gonna ask about. But I actually, I, you know, I can see some uh, some some method behind the the madness of this decision here because Mrs. Fujiwara is, I guess, right. She actually is the most hopeful, most optimistic character that we meet. In fact, in some ways, she might be the only hopeful, optimistic character that we meet uh, in either of the the time periods of this story. And the parallel, I think, between Sachiko and Mrs. Fujiwara, although they are of different generations, but the parallel is that they each lost everything except for one child. And so, in some sense, they are, uh, you know, they're, they're in the same circumstance. They're in the same situation, or at least similar enough to be mirrors of each other, generational mirrors of each other. But Sachiko is not doing well. She is not hopeful. She is not optimistic. And she's not making constructive choices, but Mrs. Fujiwara is. So what is it that Mrs. Fujiwara has or, or sees that, that Sachiko doesn't have or can't see or, or can't, can't do? My sense of Mrs. Fujiwara is that her son who has survived, Kazuo, is her anchor in this world, that she in many ways is living for him, for his happiness, that she is yearning to see him get over the, the loss of his, his fiance, his loved one, and to find a place in the world for himself, to find a, a, a family, to make a new family. And it's one that would be her family 
then as well. She is hopeful that there is still a place for her in this society. I mean, one uh, running this food truck, although it's not glamorous, and certainly we know Sachiko has a lot of class anxieties, class animosities here, but this food truck gives Mrs. Fujiwara a place in this community. And then also the hope that her son is going to marry and have a family will create another uh, group entity for her to be a member of. But Sachiko doesn't seem to look at Mariko that way. She doesn't look at her uncle or her cousin that way at all. These people all seem like burdens to her rather than uh, rather than anchors in the world. Right. I mean, we see that even in Sachiko's choice of living quarters. While Atsuko lives in this kind of communal Western apartment building, Sachiko has moved into this shack. It's out of necessity. But Sachiko's response to this trauma in her life is to gin up a romantic fantasy and then isolate herself from other community, basically. And she is the character in this novel who is openly critical of Mrs. Fujiwara, almost in the same way that Nikki is of her own mother. Is this all there is? Is this what we're living for? Um, Nikki only has this like sense of the past, um, but she hasn't lived through real trauma. Maybe I mean, the death of her father and sister is certainly traumatic, but not in this kind of massive uh, societal collapse that these that this group of people have lived through through the bombings of and f- failure at war of uh, Japan. So I think that's a really good point. Mrs. Fujiwara, her optimism, if I can sum up what you said, perhaps, <laughs> is found in the hope of the next generation, of what they will accomplish, of what they will bring to the world. And her duty is really to that wellness of her remaining child. And and maybe that explains why she tells Itsuko that she ought to be optimistic about the birth of Keiko, because for Mrs. Fujiwara, this hope, this optimism is rooted in her giving life to children, her having a family. Well, the, the next person I want to look out here is also in the older generation. <laughs> it's Ogata. He's old and lives by himself. Neither of his children have continued a tradition of living with the elder generation. He's accomplished and, and he's proud of his accomplishments in education, but all he really has to look forward to, it seems, is visits with friends and difficult encounters with his son or maybe daughter. But he really seems deep down like a lovely man. Though we do learn in his conversation with Shigeo Matsuda that Ogata was responsible for the imprisonment of five teachers in 1938, ostensibly for having dissent, ostensibly for having dissenting opinions about Japanese culture. And Shigeo outright accuses Ogata of being involved in a an evil endeavor. And yet this doesn't seem to to crush Ogata or his spirits entirely. Of course, it takes the wind out of his sails briefly. Um, But I want to get your sense of what's going on here in your view. Why is Ogata able to keep such a light persona amidst these accusations of producing evil? His actions have only led to an evil outcome. And then his failing relationship with his son. I mean, he can't even get his son motivated to defend the honor of the family name, if nothing else, even if he doesn't agree with Ogata's 
educational tactics, the family name still has to mean something. Um, and of course, Keiko is named and carries on the family name of, of for Ogata's wife. But um, what is your sense of Ogata's hope as, a, as essentially a lonely old man whose legacy, as it's presented to us in this story, is one of evil and not good? Yeah, Ogata is a really complex character here. Before I get into some of the serious things that you said, Brandon, though, I got to ask you this question about him, because it's interesting to me that you started with Mrs. Fujiwara and with Ogata. But how far into this book did you get before you realized that they weren't going to get together? Uh, Immediately. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah, I never thought Ogata would get together with Mrs. Fujiwara. I don't don't think that that is a... uh, I mean, it's hinted at in the text. There's some kind of like rom-com stuff going on. But the fact that he goes there like right after this brutal uh, accosting by Shigeo and that he's, you know, I think he kind of likes his loneliness a little bit. He likes being an old man um, and and kind of being outside of some of these situations. Yeah, I, it was really only when they got to Matsuda's house that I said, oh yeah, okay, they're not going to get together. I thought this was all building up. I mean, not like it was going to be the whole point of the novel, but that we were going to see these two old people, an old man and an old woman who have lost so much because of the war, were actually going to start over with each other, you know, both of whom are anticipating grandchildren and so on. Uh, it was only once we saw the darkness, really, in Ogata, like the real darkness in Ogata, that I suspected this was not what we were actually building towards. Though still, you know, I like a rom com and uh, the idea of, uh, um, you know, two, and the idea of two older people falling in love, you know, at a noodle shop. I don't know. I would watch that movie, I guess. Well, I do think that the relationship of Ogata and Mrs. Fujiwara to Atsuko has some real structural meaning, which is going to be my next question. But I do want to ask you about what Ogata is up to. Why is he able to maintain this light persona in this story? Or is that an effect of Atsuko's memory? Yeah, I'm 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 not sure that it really is a genuine feeling that Ogata has. I, I, I before we get into Ogata's, uh, you know, emotional state here, I, I want to make sure that we we clarify a little bit about what it is that happened in 1938. It's just that he accused people of uh, committing political dissent, fellow teachers, right, um, of being communist essentially, and and because we should be clear that that Mitsuda is. Uh, a communist. He keeps using the phrase New Dawn. And and we know he's a communist. I mean, Agata says as much. And these five teachers who he has imprisoned, uh, you know, he, well, he doesn't have them in prison, but he he testifies to the Japanese state that he knows that these colleagues of his are communists and that therefore they are actively working to overthrow the imperial government or really the military junta that uses the imperial government uh, as its uh, as its screen as it for its le- legitimacy and so they're arrested as political prisoners or you know tried and arrested as political prisoners on the evidence of Ogata which certainly is a story that could be told in a very different way in a very dark way, right? Like Ishiguro could have written a story that's just about that. Here, it is just something that we learn in a conversation that uh, two men are having on the street outside of one of these men's houses. While uh, one of these men's house, while the other man's daughter-in-law is standing there, being really awkward and really uncomfortable 
comfortable. Like this would be a sort of strange uh, scene to film, I think, uh, for for all of that. So just to be clear about like what actually it is that Ogata has done, there's no way that this can't strike us as villainous and vile as Americans in the 21st century. But I think that Ogata not only thinks he did right, but knows that he did right. That the whole way that Japanese society works and the way any society ought to work is through maintaining order, is through people knowing their place and actively working for the goals of the community and actively working for the goals of this the state. And these were people who were actively working against that and therefore were and not were enemies of the state, but not just enemies of the state, but enemies of everyone. And he did the right thing in turning them over. Yeah, he maintains that he's right throughout this conversation as well, because Shigeo says that the reason the Japanese lost the war effort was because the Japanese soldiers were indoctrinated into a way of thinking that led for them to make you know intelligent decisions on the battlefield or to even have something worth fighting for in the face of kind of the brutal nature of World War II. Um, kind of when their ideology collapsed, there was no reason to to continue fighting. And I mean, I really want to highlight this evil legacy bit that Shigeo accuses Ogata of having, uh, that he's created a generation of evil people who now need to be retrained. And Ogata, in response to this, says, uh, we didn't lose the war because of our like education system was too rigid and, and indoctrinating and teaching people about you know the lies of the government or community value. We lost because we didn't have enough money for tanks. And so his argument is kind of this economic argument that's like the state did fail. He's acknowledging that, but not because it was wrong, but because it wasn't rich enough. Um, <laughs> and so he kind of maintains this you know, this complex sense of himself in, in the larger structure of Japanese society. Yeah, he can't even hear Matsuda's argument. Like, he, does, he doesn't even recognize it for what it is, right? Matsuda's argument is, we lost the war because there was a war. And maybe we just shouldn't have had a war. And maybe if we didn't have your education system that was designed to indoctrinate people to want to fight wars, to make the state great and glorious, and in fact, to die for the state, then we wouldn't have had this war. And actually, you wouldn't have lost your wife. Atsuko wouldn't have lost her whole family. I, as Mitsuda, wouldn't have lost whoever I lost. Mrs. Fujiwara wouldn't have lost her family, right? That all of this is, uh, that all of this can be laid at the feet of the system of propaganda and indoctrination, which is the educational system. And you know, we should note here that this is something that Ishiguro takes up in a, another really beautiful novel. It's the first novel of his I ever read called An Artist of the Floating World, which is actually about someone who was a, uh, a part of the propaganda effort of the Japanese uh, government during the, the war and is, is reconciling with that. So clearly this is something Ishiguro is, is exploring here, uh, a, a small bit and then and then takes up as the central point of another book later. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the novel he wrote after this one. So clearly thinking about this uh, inspired him or influenced him in a major way. I guess we could see that what Ogata has, why he hasn't killed himself, uh, why he is not suicidal, is that he has his pride, he has his honor, 
he has his sense of uh, accomplishments, and those things to him are important, but they're almost important to the point of delusion. Like nobody can get through to him. These are hard edges of his personal identity and personality that um, he can't engage even with uh, a, a dissenting argument and is convinced of his rightness. This pride is is a big part of, of many characters in this novel, I think. And I don't think for Ogata so much, it's his hope for the future generation. It's his satisfaction with himself that, that sort of keeps him going throughout this novel of, of answering that question of what is he living for? He's a man who is content um, and has no reason to think otherwise, even when confronted with evidence to the contrary. There's definitely some self-righteousness there. I think we also should think about, I think we should also wonder how much or, or what specifically Ogata lost in the war. I mean, for one thing that we know is that how Itsuko comes into their lives, his and, and Jiro's, is that she goes to live with Ogata when she is a teenager after her family has all been killed in the, the bombing. We don't know what happened to Ogata's wife. We know that she's died, but we also know that he's old. And so it may be the case that Ogata was really spared losing anyone in the war, that his wife had died of natural causes either before the war, during the war, or, or you know, between the the bombing and now, 1951, there have been six years. Uh, certainly we know Jiro didn't die and there's no mention of any other you know, children who have, have died. Uh, there's just actually a lot that we don't know about, about Ogata's children. Jiro in, included, Jiro especially, and I guess he was a teenager probably as well, so I don't think that he fought in the war at all, though that's maybe hard to ascertain. He might be five years, maybe even 10 years older than, than Itsuko. We don't really know uh, that. Uh, we don't really know anything about that. But my sense is that Ogata has not suffered in the direct personal way that Mrs. Fujiwara has, or even Atsuko, or almost anyone else that we meet in this story. Uh, and so he just doesn't see the effects of the war the way that almost everybody else does. Yeah, I mean, one way to put it is to think that he he gained something by Atsu- by gaining this kind of foster daughter Atsuko and daughter-in-law as well, um, but also the way he thinks about the past. I mean, I mentioned just earlier that, you know, perhaps he's not motivated by thinking about what the future generation can accomplish, yet he thinks fondly uh, about a lot of his students and the ones that are alive. We have this conversation uh, with him and Mrs. Fujiwara where she says, oh yeah, one of your students went off and I haven't heard from him again which is to say that he's probably dead. But Ogata has, is satisfied that he has touched so many lives in so many different ways and done so much good that he has all of these children as well. So another way of thinking about it is that he believes in the next generation in some sense because he formed them. Well, and this is something that we see in the way that he treats and interacts with with Jiro. He has a lot of hopes pinned on Jiro. He is very proud of Jiro's accomplishments at, at work. He's very invested in in Jiro getting promoted and becoming someone important in in the business that he works for. We'd never even learn what that business is, but it's very important for Ogata that Jiro carve out this place of importance in an organization that Jiro get the acclaim of his superiors because that reflects well on Ogata. He's super invested in that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so, it's such a complex, 
uh, situation. I mean, I, I am tempted to say that, you know, in contrast to Mrs. Fujiwara, as I said, Ogata isn't thinking about the hopes of like the familial next generation, but he's maybe more, I don't know, a representation of civilization as the father typically is, <laughs> you know, in, in sort of Jungian terms. Uh, and, and, and that's kind of where I want to go next on some level before we move on to Etsuko's generation and the, and the cast of characters in the memory. I want to pause and think about that Atsuko, who is now in middle age, maybe late middle age, how she's thinking about these two figures, the Mrs. Fujiwara, the mother type figure, and Ogata, her father type figure, and how she's representing these in her memory in a way that engages with the general, with the generational divide that she's trying to bridge or in the way that she's trying to act with some sort of grace and encouragement towards Nikki, who really also hasn't had an easy time of it. Like, in other words, what about Nikki coming back? Has her implant, has Atsuko implant these two characters in her recollections? Something that we have not stated plainly in, in either episode, the recap or, or this discussion episode, is the way that change is at play here, uh, cultural change and, and social change in particular, is really the central motif of this of this book. I mean, trauma is as, as well, right? But that that over and over again, we have people of different generations struggling to relate with each other because their society and their culture has gone through gone through changes and that's what we see happening with with Nikki and Atsuko and then that's all over Atsuko's memories of Japan at this at this time as as well and it is what Japan is going through in 1951 is this massive uh, massive change yeah i mean that is certainly taking place and and we see that Atsuko can't really understand Nikki's perspective though though she does when we talk about uh, some of these characters a little bit later on uh, realize that like Nikki is somebody who reveres her mother in a strange sense of breaking free of these norms, but she doesn't understand her mother's reasons why. And I think as Itsuko is looking about ways to try to at least encourage Nikki or move her towards a more traditional life, of finding value and meaning in starting a family, in belonging to a tradition, that she's thinking about Ogata and, and Mrs. Fujiwara, you know, I think at this point, Atsuko understands finally Mrs. Fujiwara's advice about looking forward and hoping in what the next generation will provide. There's, a, there's an interest, a fascination, a love for your children that you want to see them flourish. And Nikki is not flourishing. Uh, we can put that plainly. Uh, she's not having, she's not doing poorly, but she's not flourishing. And so Atsuko, I think, realizes that Mrs. Fujiwara was saying, like, your children will give you hope. But Atsuko does not experience that in her memories. But I think she does see that in the present, that Nikki might someday want to have a family and she could have a grandchild. Uh, and I think with Ogata, you know, clearly Itsuko has difficult relationships with men, um, though they're not all of her own making. Her husband, Nikki's father, has died. And so maybe she's thinking about what is a father like? You know, how can I, uh, 
model some of this behavior for Nikki, who has lost her father, and is in this transitional time of her late teens and early 20s, kind of being really cliche and having cliche arguments against the world. Um, but what did Ogata do that helped me through this same period in my life that wasn't necessarily just rooted in the hope of having a child? He was interested in her musical endeavors in her cooking. He kind of plays the role of a student in some ways. And I think we see Itsuko's non-judgmental attitude toward Nikki, her interest in her life and what her friends are doing, um, kind of maybe come from how she's thinking about how Ogata interacted with her. That's an interesting reading of the way that she interacts with Nikki. I I, I didn't really find a whole lot of warmth in those Interaction. It seems like you, <laughs> I'm not you saying did. it's a success. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. Then, yeah, yeah, that was the pushback I wanted. I wanted to give there, but I do think that's a really interesting reading, and I had not thought either about the way that Edsuko in the present is basically Mrs. Fujiwara in the past, because I had been so focused on the ways in which Edsuko becomes Sachiko, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that's what I'm saying. Edsuko is now the age where. She is maybe open to the wisdom of the last generation, and this is her memories of them, um, because she is that generation and is realizing she is at a point in her life where she can pass something similar along to be ignored by her own child. <laughs> right. But also is having to ask herself the same question right now, you know, why Why am I alive? What am I living for? Why don't I just kill myself? I've lost my husband and my second husband. I've lost my my oldest daughter and my youngest daughter doesn't really seem to want to have a whole lot to do with me. Certainly is not interested in having a family and inviting me to be a part of it. So it, things have come maybe full circle for Atsuko in a, in a really heartbreaking way. Yeah. And I mean, this is just really a gloss on the the richness of this novel, these sorts of, of questions and this way into it. There's so many ways into this novel, but I think uh, as we continue along this, we'll, we'll be able to maybe mind the richness a little more than we would if we just talked about the Western influence on Japan or something like that. Uh, that is that is crucial to understanding this novel as well. I want to move on now to the, to the generation uh, that Asuka was a part of in the memory part of this novel. And so I'm going to start with Jiro. We're going to get to Atsuko last because she's the most complex. And um, there are questions about her reliability as a narrator that, you know, we're going to have to address. But we know very little about Jiro. And I, and I think that the text heavily suggests that he's abusive. If not physically abusive, then he's neglectful and perhaps emotionally abusive to Itsuko. First, though, I should just ask if this is your reading of his character or if you have a different sense of him uh, before we kind of get to what he's about. That is my reading of his character, but my reading of his character is also that he's perfectly normal in his own society. That I, I'm not sure that Itsuko would have thought that he was any worse of a husband than the average husband at this time. Yeah, I wondered about that. I really also want to tie Jiro to this accusation that is also a selective memory of Atsuko's to Ogata, that Ogata really just has a legacy of evil. And I wonder if Atsuko is is associating Jiro with that here. Um, I mean, we addressed how this kind of bit about the husband beating the wife for not voting the right way is kind of played for comedy here, that Ogata's issue isn't the beating, it's the... 
it's the incompatibility of the marriage. Um, but I, I also think that Jiro is, is really not a good man. Um, and that part of the influence of the, I don't know, Western premise of, uh, individual desire being achievable, um, is that the way that it's gotten to Atsuko here is that she believes that she can have a romantic love with someone else um, who's better than this Jiro character is. Yeah, I mean, there are some questions here that I think maybe we should establish some answers to before we continue to talk about their marriage, because we don't know in the text how or why their marriage ends. Do you think that their marriage ended because of a of a divorce that one of them left the other, or do you think that Jiro died? I think that uh, Atsuko has an affair with this English writer and divorces Jiro, um, and and that that is really why this moment of uh, Sachiko's life is so relevant to her memories about maybe where she misstepped, why she's holding the rope, uh, why she's holding the noose that Keiko hung herself with. Okay. Well, my reading is very different. I think Jiro kills himself. I actually quite pity Jiro. I think Jiro is perhaps even less happy in all of this than Atsuko is, less happy in this marriage than Atsuko is. He's my, my sense is that he's married to Atsuko because his father made him do this, because his father wanted to keep Atsuko in his life. And so he makes Jiro marry her. He doesn't feel like he can say no to that, though he does at least move out of the, the thumb of his father uh, in, in, in some way. He's doing this job that he clearly doesn't really, I think, enjoy all that much, but really also seems at the same time to enjoy the company of you know his bros, of these friends, and I think wishes he was unencumbered. And had that, and just the way that that Itsuko describes how Jiro was a really wonderful father to Keiko for the seven years that he was in her life, to me suggest that this was that Jiro was someone who was trying really hard to be a good father to her and just couldn't continue to do it. I, I think he took his own life. I can agree with uh, many of your arguments up to the point where I think he he took his own life, though. I think the text might support that reading on some levels, uh, that that the kind of negative aspects of Keiko came from Jiro in the mind of um, Atsuko's second husband. I think that's a fantastic reading of this text, and I don't see why... Uh, <laughs> what necessitates our readings to be separate necessarily uh, <laughs> given the sort of complexity of this text and the way that Atsuko is thinking about memories. For me, when she's saying that Jiro was a good father for the seven years they were together isn't uh, kind of a looking on the past with some rose colored glasses that she, if she had a mind to could have suffered through the marriage longer and it would have benefited Keiko, but she decided not to. Um, she decided to pursue her her own desire in some way or her own sense of a better life. Uh, and I don't think that is at odds at all with your reading of Jiro, who is maybe forced into a life that he doesn't want, which is tragic. But I think it could also, that sort of resentment could lead to abuse if that's normalized in a, in a culture. 
Yes, it, it, it may very well have. I mean, I definitely think that she's neglected and at least emotionally and verbally abused, if not physically abused, by by Juro. But I, I do want to just say for, for, for listeners, especially listeners who have not read the book along with us, there is absolutely no textual evidence for any of the things that we just said about what happened to their, their marriage. This is just These are just inferences that we made, feelings we had uh, while, while reading the text. But it was clear to me that I think you and I empathized with sympathized with Jiro in very different ways. Yes, yeah, ab- absolutely. And I and I then I guess my question about him is sort of moot, which is which is kind of keeping with this Nikki theme of what are people living for. I my sense was that Jiro would not have been too broken up by by losing his family in this way that if you say his wish is to be unencumbered, to kind of be with these office bros or maybe be with a better match of his choosing, that this would not be something that troubled him and that he would grant a divorce. But maybe your sense of what motivates him, um, his status at work, things like that is, is really different. My sense of Jiro is that he's living a life that other people want him to live and not the life that he wants to live. I, I, so I, I don't think that might, would be wrong necessarily then that, that if Atsuka went to him and said, uh, I, I don't want to be married to you anymore, that he would be okay with that. But I do also know absolutely nothing about the history of divorce in, in Japan in the, the 1950s or America in the 1950s for that matter, though I have seen the crown. So I have some sense of it in the UK in the 1950s, I guess. But my sense is that I think there would be all sorts of factors where Jiro would say no to that, even if he wanted to say yes. And I, I don't know what freedom, uh, I don't know what freedom Atsuka would actually have to get a divorce, even if she were having an affair or just simply uh, fell in love with someone else or just wanted to leave and met the English you know, reporter later. I don't know how much recourse she would really have had to, for divorce, how much access to divorce she would have had. That's something, I don't know, maybe uh, maybe a better podcaster would have looked into before getting on the mic. <laughs> well, I don't think it's re- relevant to kind of the thematic nature of the novel. This is not a uh, text about the facts of the world, strictly speaking, you know, in the way that in a Gene Wolfe text, uh, we can usually refer to some facts of the world, uh, or at least, I don't know, prepositions in the world, um, whether they're truth-based or not, that will help us illuminate what's going on. But this is deeply emotional. It is deeply uh, fantastic and dreamlike that um, the answer could be a quirk of law. (laughs) In Japan, that we're not aware of, though I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not so sure that that is the most relevant thing. Um, but I do think that what another thing we can look at is is uh, Keiko's sense that this other man is is a pig. She has no respect for him, and Sachiko having lost her husband. If there's a, a conflation there. Um, that matters. I mean, this is, we're not just making inferences or feeling our way through the text. There is loads of information here that is just bound in incomplete and selected memories for us to sift through. And that's a mixed metaphor, but uh, that's okay. (laughs) So uh, (laughs) when we think about Jiro, what he's living for, I really like your reading of the text. It's very more. It's a much more troubled sense of his character than I have, um, but I think I could get on board with that if you look at the way his actions towards Asuko, Atsuko are motivated by resentment. Uh, 
um, which is entirely a plausible reading of this text. Yeah, resentment is the perfect word. The, the word that I couldn't come up with yet. Yeah, you've nailed it. Resentment is, is at the core of my understanding of Jiro. Well, who, who's next on your, on your list? Well, we didn't do anything uh, concrete with Shiro like we could with the other characters. And I think it's only going to get more murky from here on down. <laughs> We're certainly sinking our feet into the into the muddy weeds here. But let's look at Sachiko next. She's down on her luck when we meet her. She's very prideful, like Ogata, but it's a, it's a kind of uh, toxic pride. She doesn't want help from her uncle. She has this romantic fantasy that she continues to pursue, even though all evidence to the contrary suggests that her attainment of this fantasy life will not be actually better than the one she's living. She makes excuses for ignoring her responsibilities to Mariko, you know, like not sending her to school. She cruelly dispatches with the thing that Mariko cares most about in this world, her cats. Really, the cats are a symbol of stability and normalcy for Mariko. She carries them with her through each transition. Uh, we know that Sachiko's husband died in the war and he's got and that Sachiko has got these airs of self-reliance, but is looked down on others, and these airs of self-reliance are really just airs. They are paper thin. Um so kind of in 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 going on with the way we're approaching these characters, what is Sachiko striving for? And a secondary question maybe to to fold into that is what is it about Nikki's visit that sparks these memories about Sachiko? I'll answer the first part of that question uh, first. I mean, you know, it came first, so that might make some sense. But also, I'm really interested in uh, using, I'm really interested in how we can use Sachiko's situation here to make some uh, extrapolations about what's going on in Japan during this time. Because something that is not happening in Sachiko's life is uh, that there doesn't seem to be an option for her is to marry a Japanese man who would, you know, to find a Japanese man who would marry her and become a, a father to Mariko. That the options that she has seem to be move in with family or marry a foreigner. And of course, I think we can, although I have no demographic information in, in front of me, this again is something else I did not look into. I think we can assume that a high percentage of men aged, you know, 20 to 45 are dead because of the war, right? That there are more Japanese women of marriageable age than there are men. And therefore, widows and especially widows with children are having a hard time remarrying and finding families to be in. But Sachiko does not want to be a subordinate in someone else's home because she has already lived a life where she's been the the, the matron of her own home and she doesn't want to go backwards. She wants she wants that, right? And the only way that she can have that, seemingly, is to marry a foreigner and and relocate in order to have that that independence. I mentioned in the recap that she's also interested in reinvention, that she doesn't necessarily want to hold tightly onto her Japanese identity as such in terms of cultural identity. Um, and, and the way I suggested that she's doing this is by projecting her desires for reinvention onto Mariko. She says, you know, Mariko can be a movie star, which is, you know, the encapsulation of the American dream, <laughs> I suppose, to be worshipped on a screen by others. But yeah, I, I think your point is really well taken about the 
loss of men of marriageable age, we never really know what the fight between Sachiko and her cousin is about. Uh, Sachiko says it was about like whose turn it was to cook at night, and that's why she left. Um, but for that to be the straw that breaks the camel's back, I think means there's much more roiling under the surface. And another mixed metaphor. I'm full of them today. That's <laughs> what we uh, do here. <laughs> but when I read this book, the first time I was see- seeking evidence that the uncle might have uh, harmed Mariko in some way or had made some moves on Sachiko. But I think it's much more than when we see that he's old and bedridden. Uh, we know that that probably was not the case and that Sachiko is I think, as you put it, Glenn, not interested in living in somebody else's household, especially somebody that's her husband's family, which means that she doesn't have any family left that can support her. So she really has lost anything. And she has uh, retreated into a deep fantasy life that has left the material world and her responsibilities to that world behind. So to me, you know, with the introduction of her character in the American car, to me, she is this really pure embodiment of, as I've kind of been driving at this whole time, in some ways, the Western ideal of desire over responsibility um, and or preferencing desire to the attainment of desire to the achievement of one's duties or responsibilities. And, um, she is this new kind of woman in some ways. She's okay burning bridges. She doesn't need the local community to support her because she's moving on, she's moving up, and she's moving out. And and so that's where you see some connections, some parallels with with Nikki, I, I, for sure. And and you know something that we should reiterate here is that we know that Sachiko's father was a, a businessman, and that that he himself was perhaps even enamored of America and raised Sachiko uh, that way as as well. And so that's something that is looming over Sachiko's decisions and maybe the way that she's thinking about her own culture now, though I, I maybe am less willing to go as far as you are here and seeing her being internally westernized in her approach towards uh, wish fulfillment and, and, and you know, going after her desires, uh, because I, I'm seeing a lot of pride in Sachiko. I mean, yes, that that was the the first thing I think that I mentioned about her character is that she's prideful and her pride is certainly a stumbling block for her achievements. Um, but it's also what she uses to justify not continuing this kind of traditional Japanese life and being taken in by her family um, and starting over and looking for a husband. So her pride, I think, is more in herself and her status and her class and less so in her uh, sort of understanding of her culture and, and her uh, how she has been informed by her culture. All right. So Atsuko is the, the last character here. But before we get to her, we need to talk about the artifice of the novel and think about <laughs> how all of the characters of the past are are really just phantoms of memory. So, you know, let's talk about the mysterious elements of the novel, the parts of this novel that make you ask, hey, is Asuko out there killing kids? Is Atsuko Sachiko? Is Mariko Keiko? We can sum up 
these parts of the novel, I think in this way, though, Glenn, you might, you might want to um, add to this or, or push back as <laughs> we have been <laughs> reading this novel in different ways. Um, but children have been getting murdered. These are the mysterious parts of the novel that we can sum up. Children have been getting murdered. One child, a girl has been hung. In two cases in the novel, Atsuko is pursuing children, maybe just Mariko, or maybe Mariko and Keiko, or a Mariko-Keiko conflation. She's been pursuing these people with a rope. And certainly this final conflation of Mariko-Keiko also appears to collapse the identities of Atsuko and Sachiko. So before I read what Ishiguro said about what what he was trying to achieve with this novel... I'd like to get a sense, Glenn, of what you think is happening with these parts of the novel, the mystery stuff, the page turner stuff, the thriller conceits, the ghost story. I've been trying to drive at the, at the structure, uh, drive at what I think is going on kind of in the structure of this discussion so far, but I'd like maybe more to get a cold reading of what you thought while you were reading this novel and what you think now after some reflection. Why is this mystery stuff in here? Why these uh, pop genre novel conceits. I will say that I never harbored any suspicion that Itsuko was murdering kids. I, I mean, I know that we're we're meant to that 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 Ishiguro is ev- evoking that uh, by using the rope, but the rope to me, right from the start, seemed to be an artifact of Itsuko's memory, and I, I suspect the rope was never actually present at, at that time, at least not in the second scene that we get. It might have been in the in the first scene where I think it would would legitimately have been the thing that she said it was, which is something that she that got tangled in her her sandal as she was uh, walking next to the river at at night. So that never I never bought that. I never got hooked by that. But I definitely was hooked by the conflation of the identities and really had to to pause and, and go for a walk and think through all of the evidence again and wonder what it would mean if Suchiko never existed and it was always Edsuko. And uh, yeah, I, I spent a lot of time on that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's certainly something that Ishiguro is asking us to do. And I, I we pointed out in the recap episode, for those of you who read the novel and, and think, I'm just going to listen to the discussion, we pointed out that this symbolism of the rope, especially in the second scene, um, you know, one manufactures the conflation, right? Because we know that she had a rope in her hand when she saw Mariko, and now we have a different scene, but she's already taken the rope off of her sandals. So logically, the only way this works is with the the kind of dreamlike conflation of images. So what what we said was this this is Atsuko literally holding on to the thing that killed her daughter, and it's a symbol of her guilt. Uh, and, and so Atsuko was saying, I, I killed my daughter with my decisions and Sachiko made these decisions and Mariko, who knows where she is or what she's up to, but her antagonism towards her mother and to the move West was present in this child. And I should have known better, um, because I was putting my daughter through the same thing. Right. And because she knew when, when this summer, when she's friends with Sachiko, at this point, she knows that Sachiko is doing something that is awful for her daughter. So therefore, Etsuko, uh, seven years later or eight years later, when you know she's making the same choice, ought to have known better as as well. And, and this is actually part of where I think that uh, Jiro is 
is dead, by the way, and not that uh, she has divorced him, is that I also think that Ogata is still alive at this point and that Ogata asked them to come live with him and she chose not to in the same way that Sachiko is choosing not to go live with her uncle. That is a perfectly plausible reading. Because <laughs> <has> no evidence. <laughs> but but everything is is sort of evident here. And and that's what, what I want to talk about here is what Ishiguro was trying to accomplish with this novel. So here I go quoting something off the internet that I couldn't find the root source for. <laughs> uh, so, but, but I did find them on the internet on somebody's like, uh, you know, GeoCity site or something. So they must have been spoken by Ishiguro himself. Maybe somebody can track down the source. It might've been published in like a magazine or something that's not been put in the digital archive. I had a really hard time finding it. Um, and you and I, of course, are, are at times more than happy to cast off an author's words about their own work if their aims don't adhere to our readings. But I think in this case, it's important. Here's Ishiguru speaking about what he was trying to achieve in this novel. He says this, it's really Itsuko talking about herself. The meanings that Itsuko imputes to the life of Sachiko are obviously the meanings that are relevant to Itsuko's own life. Whatever the facts were about what happened to Sachiko and her daughter, they are of interest to Itsuko now because she can use them to talk about herself. The whole narrative strategy of the book was about how someone ends up talking about things they cannot face directly through other people's stories. I was trying to explore, and here's uh, an elision that I, I don't know what he said. I was trying to explore how people use the language of self-deception and self-protection. So I guess before we really talk about Itsuko, do you think Ishiguro achieved these means? And and, and two, does this give us free reign to interpret the book as, as we have been doing? <laughs> well, I do think it gives us free reign to interpret the book as we have been doing, because he's, he's telling us that this is sub- subjective. That, that her memory of this is not perfect, right? That this is uh, subjective, that she's misremembering things and some of it, you know, intentional might not be the right way to do it, but that she is conflating things and perhaps even fabricating things or emphasizing some things over others, sometimes maybe even completely ignoring some things because of the lens through which she is is viewing all of this, which is Keiko's suicide and other things that have happened in her life uh, along the way. And, you know, we all do this as we get older, even if we're not uh, dealing with the types of, of tragedies that uh, Itsuko is in 1980 and the, the present of this text. So, yeah, I think we, uh, we have free reign to do exactly what we're doing. I think it's what he wants us to do. But then to the question of, do I think he's accomplished his ends here? I absolutely think he has. I think this is a, a masterpiece that ex- explores what memory is for and how we use it, how we appropriate our own past and repurpose it and reframe it and repackage it as we reinvent ourselves and also as we have to deal with new circumstances in our lives. It's it's beautiful. Right. And I, I love that you use this word reinvention here in this context because Itsuko is, as she's remembering this, at another point of reinvention. She has to reinvent a reason to go on or else she'll be mired in what she's lost. And and that's a, a big part of what's happening with Atsuko. I mean, her life is, by all accounts, a series of catastrophes, traumas, and failings. Yet Nikki views her mother as kind of heroic and, and talks about her mother's life to her friends 
maybe as a sort of paragon to the type of women that they want to be, to the point that one of her friends wants to write a poem about her mother. We didn't talk about this in the recap, but this is why I'm maybe framing Nikki as talking to her friends about her mother's the hard life and how she's overcome it and how she's stayed true to herself. And now she sees her mother flagging in that um, in some way, perhaps. But Atsuko seems really aloof to all of this background admiration from Nikki as I'm framing it. And she doesn't really expect that Nikki is going to accomplish much with her life either, though she's, I don't know, she's maybe very gracious about that. So Atsuko now is widowed. She's living on her own. One of her daughters has committed suicide. The other is unfocused. And Atsuko is carrying the burden of it. She's carrying the burden of her failings. I, I, I should say in a very different way than she presents Ogata doing this. So maybe let me ask you then, Glenn, what has Atsuko been pursuing? Maybe it's multiple things, or maybe she's had to change those things over time. But what do you think keeps her going? What's kept her going in the past? Well, for one, her her children. Uh, and this again, I'm, and I keep going back to this, where I think Jiro is dead, not that she divorced him. I think that she ends up in the same position that Sochiko does, where she, she has to find uh, some means to financially care for Keiko at, at seven, eight, nine, something like that. And, you know, doesn't have the ability perhaps to get a job or open a noodle shop or something like that. And is faced with this choice of rely on Ogata or find another husband. And in this case, a foreigner. But I think that these, but I think that she's driven by Keiko in that moment by needing to care for Keiko at that time. I think, you know, since you think that she fell in love with this journalist and had an affair and got a divorce, I think you'll you'll find a different motivation at that point of her life than than I'm finding there. But uh, for me, I think that it's her children almost almost always. Uh, and in fact, we don't really know anything about her second husband. We know less about him than we know about Juro. And it doesn't really ever seem actually that she thinks all that much about her husbands that she's living for them or that they they give her much of a of a purpose she seems to be oriented towards her children even simply when she's pregnant with with Keiko and maybe in some ways even more interested in her elders more interested in Ogata and Mrs. Fujiwara than she is in her husbands yeah my reading is so different from yours it's crazy <laughs> I, I, I mean i i think that what she sees in Sachiko, the things she's critical of, or the way she's presenting Sachiko to herself, the way she's using the language of self-deception and self-protection, is that she sees in Sachiko the root of those desires that she pursued. Maybe this is the first time she's being honest with herself and saying, maybe I did frame my life and saying I had to care for my children. In the same way Sachiko is always saying, Mariko will have a better life. She'll be stable. She'll settle down. Um, she'll go to school, uh, but we'll never really attain that. I think Keiko's life was better in many ways than Mariko's, but I think the recognition that Etsuko is having through these recolle recollections is the recognition of the pursuit of the self over the the actual well-being of her children. I mean, I don't think that she's much to be proud of in Nikki that Nikki's not pursuing anything meaningful other than her own desires. I think that that is part of the reason why she's thinking about these things. And she's unable to say, 
but I have that in myself. I pass that on to my child. Um, and she frames it all in, in Sachiko's kind of madcap adventures in tracking down her American boyfriend in bars and brothels and whatnot. Um, that the belief is she is pursuing a better life for herself and there's some collateral damage. Right. And I, I think that you, maybe the, the the root of our divergent readings here of Edzuko's character is also is really in Sachiko's character. Because I think that you see a level of, of uh, let's just call it hedonism in Sachiko that I don't actually see. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. I mean, you said it, so it must be true. But I, <laughs> I, I, wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't say that it's like somatic hedonism or something like that, that is... That is um, guiding Sachiko's experience or desires. Um, I don't think it's, I think the the conflict is in the way that what Sachiko claims to be pursuing is at divergence with what she wants her ends to be. So she thinks she keeps on saying it's for her children, but she keeps on doing terrible things to Mariko's sense of well being and sense of stability. In other words, it's not hedonism. It's the lack of willingness to sacrifice anything that she wants for her own life, including her fantasies about the better life for the sake of what her child is experiencing. And and that that's really, I think, what I see in Sachiko's character, that Atsuko is circling around in herself in this novel. Right. But I, I think where we're interpreting both Sachiko and Atsuko differently is that you're, you're talking about Sachiko in terms of, of pleasure and desire. And I'm, I'm thinking about Sachiko in terms of, of, of pride and, and independence. She's seeking independence and seeking to be at the, the top of the, the social order in a, in a house. And I just have the sense that you're, you think that she's into Frank uh, and maybe into the American lifestyle and perhaps into going to bars and brothels and stuff in ways that I don't, I don't think is, is true. I think that she's, I think that she's not heading towards that so much as she's heading away from the other thing, heading away from having to be junior in her uncle's household. And so that that's where then I would, uh, you know, in, in seeing parallels between Itsuko and Sochiko, I would read the same thing onto Itsuko. But I also am totally willing to be wrong about this. And in fact, this is something that I, you know, I really hope that we'll get listeners to come to the forum and, and, and you know, chime in here about these pretty divergent readings, I think, that we have of this text. For the first time in, in a long time, we have really divergent readings of, of, of a story we've read. Yeah, and I, I'm not quite willing to say that it, it has to be an either or either, that that either my reading or your reading is right. I think what was brought out of the text in, in, in both of our readings is really uh, an attunement to the complexity of the whole emotional life of this story, that it's, it's, it's easy to see certain things in certain readings, perhaps based on a, a personal type of hermeneutic um, or, or a, a mode of interpretation or desire to interpret what's happening, but that it can all be there at the same time um, because Ishiguro has painted a beautiful portrait of deep emotional complexity of desire, of divergent outcomes, of hope, of 
pessimism, of optimism, <laughs> that that all of this is actually, as I said, all of these is represented by these phantoms of of memory. These are all things that are swirling inside of Atsuko. Um, and, and they might all be there, uh, but I'm also willing to be wrong. I should say, I just, I just don't think it needs to be in either or strictly speaking, especially in, in a text like this. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the, and, and I think the thing that Ishiguro is, is getting at here is that if we asked Atsuko, you know, on the, the, the blank page that follows the last page of this story, which it is, is it Glenn's reading or Brandon's reading? She might say Brandon's reading, but if we asked her 10 years ago, she might say Glenn's reading, right? Because we change our own stories. We change the, the way that we remember our own selves and our own motivations. Maybe not in ways, well, sometimes yes, but it doesn't have to be in ways where we invent things out of whole cloth, invent things that were never true. But both of these things were at play for both of these characters and which one was emphasized the most, which one was more important in the actual moment. Uh, neither of these characters may even be able to remember that. Right. And, and Atsuko goes so far as to say this in the text, in the passage that I read uh, in, in our recap episode, where she talks about, uh, my sense of these images is that they were very strong back then, but they might only be strong now because I need them to frame what I'm thinking about. Um, and, and so it's a, it's a gorgeous bit of craftsmanship. Well, I think, I think we've covered maybe as much as we can with this very specific way in to the novel that I that I chose for the discussion, which is looking at instead of the maybe the deep pessimism of the novel, <laughs> um, and it's not really a pessimistic novel, but in in answering the question that I think Nikki is is pushing at, and kind of looking at Nikki's influence on the as being the cause of the memory, which is like what are people even living? For what are they endeavoring towards, and and that that's the mode I chose to go in. There are many other ways of digging into this novel, um, but I think we've done as much as we can with this way in. Glenn, I just want to ask you though. I think we've we've made it very clear. What did you think of this book? Like just a, a last kind of give me your sense of it. As I said, I was very excited to get this commission because Ishiguro is one of my favorite writers, though I have not read everything that Ishiguro has ever written. I, I've not read his fantasy novel, which you know seems strange given that we are a speculative fiction book club podcast network, <laughs> right? But I've, I've, not, I've not read that one. My first Ishiguro book was An Artist of the Floating World. And then from there, I read everything that had been written up to that point. And, uh, and then I read Never Let Me Go. I mean, I, I stood in line at the tattered cover in Denver to get that book the day it was uh, the day it was released and devoured it in like a day and a half and then i just never picked up anything else uh, after that that's which is you know because i went to grad school and didn't have time to read for fun at that point because reading was you know the job uh, at that point uh, but a pale view of hills so that that is a book that i had read i think it was probably the second or third book i got it from the same public library i was getting all my gene wolf books at the same time that i was reading all my gene wolf books but I actually did not, even though I knew I had read this book before and remembered some bits of it, I had a very poor memory of this book in ways that uh, his other books really uh, stand out to me. But I don't know why, because having read this book again, you know, now a second and third time uh, in, my, in my life, it is absolutely awesome. And uh, I don't know why it didn't loom as large in my memory as I think it probably should have. But hey, it's about memory and how we choose to remember or forget things. So maybe that's <laughs> maybe that's okay. How about you? 
Yeah, I really love this book. I had never let me go on my shelf for a long time, um, but then did the lazy thing and watched the movie and didn't love it. So I didn't read the book. And then it, and then the book made it to one of my giveaway piles at some point, um, which I'm now kicking myself for because all I want to do is read Ishiguro. I think the novel I'm going to read after this is uh, Remains of the Day. And, and the reason why is... One thing I admire about this text is its sense of quiet and everything that's happening beneath the surface. And I think the remains of the day is, you know, supposed to be a sort of uh, similar type of style and tone. And I and I really admire hugely how Ishiguro is able to do that. I mean, the writer in me wants to take it apart at the seams and understand how simple sentences and um, simple interactions with people can leave you with this sense of hauntedness and menace and sadness uh, that is uh, something I think very few writers are able to achieve. I think Murakami is able to do that. So uh, at times, I've only read two of his books. Uh, you know, what I like about his prose also is, is kind of this kind of sense of space and quiet. But uh, this to me really blew me away. And I'm so glad we read this novel. It's gorgeous. And uh, I want to take it apart and uh, internalize the tricks that Ishiguro was able to pull off. Oh, yeah. We easily could have done 20 episodes on this book if we you know, had the ability to give this the, the chapter by chapter recap and discussion type of treatment that we have done in the past. But something that was embedded there, Brandon, that I, I don't think I realized. You, is this the only Ishiguro book you've ever read? Yeah, you found me out. I, uh, okay. I, okay. I spoke well, around so, it. Yes, yeah. So it, it here's is. the thing about Never Let Me Go. It's the exact plot of The Fifth Head of Cerberus. So in 20 years, we're going to revisit, we're going to read that book together on the podcast in 20 years. <laughs> or as okay, a Patreon great. goal or Put something. Put it on the calendar. <laughs> it's on the calendar. It's on the calendar for 2041. <laughs> great. I'm, well, I'm looking forward to it. And, I'll, and I'll, maybe I'll hold off buying a copy until then. But uh, I think I, I'm really excited to read more Ishiguru. I, I remember I was interested in reading The Buried Giant when it came out, um, but it got kind of poorly reviewed and I had other books on my shelf that I was like, I should read 10 of these before buying another book I'm not going to read for a decade. So I, I didn't get it. But my God, this book, can't recommend it enough. It is a, a thing of beauty and a, and a work of art. Right. I think what we're saying here is, please, someone commission us to do more Ishiguro novels. It's the only way that we can uh, we could we could fit them into the schedule or justify uh, fitting them into the schedule. But I think uh, if we are uh, begging for more commissions and also planning for what we're going to be doing in 2041, uh, it might be time to get out of here. So that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us and our other creative projects, as always, at claytemplemedia.com. If you would like to do a commission episode, we'd love to do that for you. So please get in touch with us either through Patreon or through other uh, dark back channels like Twitter or <laughs> however uh, our, our email address on the Clay Temple website. Find a way. Um, again, check us out on Patreon. If you like what we're doing here, consider supporting us. We have a ton of bonus episodes, too. And please do head on over to the Clay Temple forums or, or stop by our subreddit. Let us know what you thought of this book. Obviously, we both loved it. But also, hey, we've got pretty divergent readings of some of the material here. And uh, we need to know who won because what's at stake is who <laughs> buys the uh, the next round of beer whenever we're actually able to be physically present together again. Well, 
All right. So unless we get another commission in the meantime, we really will be back next on April 13th to talk about the first few pages of peace. And so until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>